Hey, good morning. My name's Dave. Uh, great to have you here this morning at Connect. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here, and if you're here in person or you're watching online, we're thrilled that you chose to make this a part of your morning today to start out your week uh, by spending time here um, at church. What a great start to the morning. Some amazing worship there. Thank you, worship team. Um, so I was reading, I, I was actually, I came across an article earlier this week that caught my eye because the title of the article was on a BBC webpage, was The Curse of Intelligence. And I thought, well, that seems very relevant to me. What is this curse that I am apparently under? So I read this article and it was talking about, you know, looking back over the years, how, how sometimes intelligence isn't all it can be cracked up to be. It explained that 100 years ago, this newfangled thing they called the IQ test was starting to gain some traction. It had proved itself during uh, the World War I recruitment centers, and people were now using it more and more to assess people's level of intelligence. So a researcher decided to, to find 1,500 high school students across the state of California who scored highly in the IQ test, and, and keep track of them over the years that followed to see just how different their lives were than people who maybe didn't score as highly in the IQ test. He discovered that some excelled in life, clearly as a result of their intelligence. But what was fascinating was he discovered that not all did. In fact, many didn't. He said that um, while some uh, did very well, others pursued more humble professions, such as police officers, seafarers, and typists. If you're a police officer, a seafarer, or a typist here this morning, I apologize. I'm not saying that you are any lower uh, intelligence-wise, but this is what the article found. Um, it said that not just that, there were actually some things that highly intelligent people struggled to do. Some real basic common sense things like balancing checkbooks or managing basic life tasks. So if intelligence doesn't lead to rational decisions and a better life, what does, the article asked. Well, Igor Grossman at the University of Waterloo in Canada thinks that we need to turn our minds to an age-old concept known as wisdom. Wisdom, that, that intelligence is something that can be quantified through an IQ test, but it's maybe not all that it's cracked up to be if it, um, if it stands alone without partnering with wisdom. The article actually said that there are already companies like Google that are redesigning their application process to focus not so much on how intelligent is this applicant, but how much wisdom does this applicant have? So this morning, we're gonna learn a little bit more about a man who was highly educated, who in his time would have had the best uh, access to, to education possible, was probably very intelligent. And yet, despite being educated in the finest establishments in the world, ends up falling from grace and ending up in obscurity. This man's name is Moses. And Moses is a guy that we've started to talk about here at Connect. We began a brand new series here last week. If you weren't here last week, we, we talked about um, Moses' story, his, his birth story. And it's a fascinating story. Because Moses lived about 1,500 years before the birth of Jesus. And despite being born at the worst possible time in history to be a Jewish baby boy, nothing, we learned last week, was going to get in the way of God's plan being accomplished. You see, at the time Moses was born, the Egyptians had enslaved the Hebrews. 
They were living in slavery. And um, the, the Pharaoh, who's in charge of all of Egypt, he'd sent out this, this command that all Hebrew baby boys were to be killed. So the Jews are in slavery. Hebrew baby boys are being killed. And yet somehow, not only does Moses survive, he's actually adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the very person who said that all Hebrew babies boys should be killed, his own daughter is now raising one of those boys. We learned last week that God's plan wasn't just to keep Moses alive, but it was to keep him um, successful. Pharaoh's daughter looked for a, a midwife, somebody to nurse and raise this baby boy, and it turns out that Moses' own mother was the person selected to do the job. So she got to raise her own son for a period of time before he had to leave and go live in the palace. That's where we ended last week on Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. Later, when the boy was older, his mother, his very own mother, brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who then adopted him as her own son. So this morning, the story continues. What happens in the next stage of Moses' life? Well, Exodus, the book that tells us the story about Moses, it's in the Old Testament. It's the second book of the Bible. Uh, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about this next part of Moses' life. In fact, really, there's just one verse. Exodus 2, verse 11. It says, many years later, when Moses had grown up. That's it. Many years later, when Moses had grown up. Not a lot of information to be found in that very short verse. But fortunately, we have the whole Bible. And what's fascinating is that people in the New Testament, when Jesus was alive, they knew the stories of the Old Testament. They knew it was part of their, their heritage. So in a book in the New Testament called Acts, there is a young man by the name of Stephen. Stephen is a brand new follower of Jesus. He's passionate. He loves Jesus. In fact, he loves him so much that it cost him his life. He was killed for being a martyr. He was killed for, he was martyred for being a follower of Jesus. And one day in Acts chapter 7, we read about Stephen preaching this wonderful sermon to the people of his time. And in this sermon, he was kind of going through some of the major events in the Old Testament. And he gets to Moses. And listen to what Stephen tells us about Moses in Acts chapter 7, verses 21 to 22. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. And in verse 22, Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was powerful in both speech and action. We don't read that in Exodus. But in the New Testament, Stephen, who knew well the story, the history of Moses, is telling people, hey, after being given over to Pharaoh's daughter, here's what happened. He was raised. He was, he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was powerful in both speech and action. Moses was born in the ghetto of Goshen and now finds himself in the king's palace. If we had to try and find a modern-day equivalent, it would be like a, a baby boy born in the, the slums of Calcutta. An Air Force One coming over and landing rescuing this baby boy, taking him back to America where the first lady raises him as her own son. And even that doesn't really do justice to the magnitude of what's going on here with this baby, this Hebrew baby boy being raised in the palace of the king. 
Thanks to our own understanding of history and archaeology and what was going on in Egypt around 1,500 years before the birth of Jesus, we know quite a lot about what that would have looked like for Moses to have been raised in Pharaoh's palace. In Egypt, he would have been educated in what was called the Temple of the Sun. The Temple of the Sun has been called by some the Oxford University of the ancient world. So as a child of Pharaoh, as a young Egyptian, he would have had the best education possible. Here he would have learned to read and write in hieroglyphics. This was a place where not everyone, very few people, could actually read and write. And if they did read and write, this was the kind of language they had to read and write. That's, that's pretty complicated. It is said that hieroglyphics is one of the hardest languages to learn and read, let, to learn to read, let alone write. I found a wonderful little uh, place on Google that lets you type in your name and it'll tell you what it is in hieroglyphics. So this is Dave. There I am. Now, if you've, ever written a hand, if you've ever received a handwritten note from me, you'll know from my regular English handwriting, Dave's hard to read. And that's just D-A-V-E. If I wrote to you back in Egyptian times, I'd have to sign it, glove, bird, snake, arm. I think that's what that is. Hand, bird, snake, arm. That would be very difficult to do. I'm not the world's best artist. I have a friend, a family, who um, uh, their daughter is very special to Casey and I. And uh, over the years, she's written us some cards and she draws me some lovely pictures and she brings them to me at church. So Mr. Dave, and she'll give me this lovely picture that she's drawn. So when she invited me to her seventh birthday party just a few weeks ago, I thought, you know what I'm gonna get her? I'm gonna draw, I'm gonna hand draw a card to give to her. This was that work of art. <laughs> She likes to horse ride, so I clearly drew her a picture of a horse that apparently has no legs and is sitting on two sawhorses, ironically. <laughs> so you imagine me back in Egyptian times having to write hieroglyphics. No one would understand a word I'm saying. That's, if that's my horse, how am I going to do with a snake and a glove and an arm? But this was Moses. He was learning to read and write in this ancient language. The author Charles Swindoll, who writes a wonderful book about the life of Moses, he talks about this period of Moses' life. He says he would also have plunged into the sciences, medicine, astronomy, chemistry, theology, philosophy, and law. He most certainly took the equivalent, uh, the Egyptian equivalent of ROTC, studying the battles, combat tactics, and foes of that nation's proud military history. On top of that, he would have dabbled in the arts, sculpture, music, and painting. The whole world of Egyptian literature was opened to him. The adopted son of the princess found himself immersed in Egyptian learning. It became his life. So picture this, this Hebrew baby that miraculously survived has now gone from obscurity living as the, the child of a, of a slave, a family in slavery, to suddenly being in the palace, a leader, highly educated and skilled. And yet still, as a Hebrew, aware of his roots from the mother who raised him. Looking on this morning, I think for you and I, he would be the best possible candidate to lead his fellow countrymen out of their bondage and misery. What a great person. This, this has to be the man that God will choose. I mean, he's got, he ticks all the boxes. 
highly educated, trained, a, a military strategist. So let's look this morning and see how this great man begins his leadership journey. Exodus 2 verse 11. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. So, picture the scene. Moses has grown up in the palace, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was probably well known in all the right circles in Egypt. He had no reason to be anywhere near the Hebrews, the slaves. They, they lived on the wrong side of town. But one day, Moses decides, I'm going to cross over to the other side of the tracks. I'm going to leave my place of comfort and luxury because I want to see what life was really like for these Hebrew slaves. The Hebrew slaves and Moses, their paths would never have crossed so he decides one day, I want to see. I've, I've heard the stories. I see them in the distance doing their work and building the pyramids, whatever it is they're doing. I want to go across and actually see these people close up. And when he gets there, what he sees wrecks him. It breaks his heart. He sees how hard they had to work. He sees the misery of their slavery. He sees firsthand with his own eyes the cruelty of their captors. Did you notice in that verse in Exodus, it didn't say he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. It says he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. This wasn't a passive situation where he looked on with pity at what was happening. He, he felt this deep in his heart. These are my people. I am a part of this people group and I can see the misery of the hard work. I can see the cruelty of the way they are being treated. It has a profound effect on him. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. So after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, he kills the Egyptian. Stephen describes the same event this way. He says, one day when Moses um, was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, so Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. We know this, but then Stephen adds, Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them. So Stephen gives us a little extra part of the story here that we don't read in Exodus. In Exodus, we read what happened, that Moses killed the Egyptian. In Acts, Stephen tells us why. It happens. Stephen explains the motive behind Moses' actions. Stephen tells us that Moses assumed his fellow countrymen would realize that God sent him. That as Moses took the life of that Egyptian, cruel slave owner, that he was probably thinking, this is it. This is my moment here is where it begins. The revolution has started. This is the beginning of the uprising. This is Neo choosing the red pill. This is Sarah Connor giving birth to a son who will take down Skynets. This is Woody jumping out of the window to go and rescue Buzz. This is the moment where everything's gonna change. 
<laughs> Some of you liked the last reference, but you're like, I like that part of the film. <laughs> That's how Moses had to be thinking. This is it. It's beginning. The revolution has started. I wonder if Moses, after killing that Egyptian and hiding him in the sand, walked back to the palace that night thinking, surely this will be the moment that for centuries to come, people will look back on and say, that's when the spark was lit. That day when Moses did that, the spark was lit that would send the fuse to the explosion when the entire Jewish people were then freed from their captors. He probably felt a little bit like Paul Revere galloping along on horseback crying, the British are coming, which is obviously a key part of the American version of how the Revolutionary War began. Uh, of course, the real version is that Paul Revere was riding horse crying, the British are coming, they've graciously decided to give up the colonies to us, they no longer want them. So that's, that's the full thing of what Paul Revere obviously was, was crying as he rode his horse. I bet Moses slept so well that night. I bet Moses slept great, proud of the fact that he'd done something good for his people. Maybe deep down in his heart, he had this feeling that he was destined for great things, that he might just be the man to help rescue his people from all of this injustice. And this was the first step in making that happen. As he lay his head on his palatial pillow, he probably fell asleep excited about what was gonna come the next day. And what did happen next? Let's find out. Verse 13 of Exodus chapter two. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend? Moses said to the one who had started the fight. And the man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you gonna kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. Man, in an instant, in just a few short verses, everything in Moses' life changes. He went from being Israel's rescuer in his mind to a fugitive on the run. I mean, put yourself in Moses' shoes as he is escaping death from Pharaoh, going out to the back of beyond a place called Midian. He had to be thinking um, all sorts of emotions, fear, betrayal, confusion, anger. He was doing a good thing. He was a fellow Jew. He saw the plight of his own countrymen and decided to step in and do something about it. And don't forget, as we've already established, he was in the best possible position to do something about it. He wasn't a slave. He was a highly educated, military trained person of power. What better person to begin the revolution than Moses? So why would his own people turn on him like that? How is it that in an instant he goes from the palace to the wilderness? And it really was the back of beyond. From this place of power to a place of obscurity. As we read on in Exodus 2, we learn that he ends up in this place called Midian, a place where no one knew him, 
we learn that his life continues on. That one day he was sat by a well, probably drowning, just, just in misery, thinking of all that had happened. And he noticed that some, some shepherds were um, giving a hard time to this, this group of women who'd come to get some water for their flocks. And he stood up to the shepherds. He said, hey, stop harassing these daughters. They were the daughters of the priest of Midian. When their father, the priest, heard about this, he invited Moses to come and eat with them. And as time went on, we learned that Moses ended up marrying one of these daughters. He had a child, and he settled in to what I'm sure Moses assumed was his new life. This life of obscurity, miles away from the palace in which he'd grown up. And I have to wonder, in the years that went on after this point, having grown up eating the finest food, learning the greatest lessons from the wisest people. Can you imagine being in such high society and now living out in the middle of nowhere? What was going through his mind? What conclusions he came to? I wonder if with the benefit of hindsight, as he looked back, he was aware of what the two mistakes were that he made. If he came to realize them, as I was studying this passage, I, these, these were the two mistakes I think Moses made. And I wonder if Moses came to the same conclusion as well. They are two mistakes that we can learn from today to make sure that we don't find ourselves following in Moses' footsteps. Here's the first mistake I think Moses made. He didn't realize that timing is everything. Timing is everything. I don't know what it was, whether it was his knowledge of his own Hebrew roots or just that he was a man of compassion. When he saw his fellow countrymen being mistreated, he couldn't just sit back and watch. He had to do something about it. And I think God made him this way. I think through his birth story to where he was now, God had put this in him, this compassion to not just say, you know what, I don't care about those people. Look at what I've got. I'm happy living in luxury what? Just don't get involved. This has nothing to do with me. But that isn't the way Moses was wired. Moses was wired differently. This was a good thing. This would make him the greatest possible candidate to rescue the Israelites. But now wasn't the right time. That moment wasn't the right time. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you could tell stories as you look back over your life at God's timing at work. How there were moments where you really felt like now would be the best time for this to happen, God, I'm ready, and it didn't. Maybe you felt a little bit frustrated. And then when something did happen, when something did change, you look back and say, man, God, your timing is so much better than my timing. That was the perfect time for that to happen. Or I look back now and I can see how much I learned, how much I grew during that time where I figured you were off in your time. But actually, God, it was perfect timing because of what you were able to do in my life. I believe that timing is as important as action. Action is obviously important. God wants us to do things. God wants us to be a, a people of action. But action alone isn't enough. Timing is incredibly important. One blow struck when the time is right is worth a thousand struck in premature eagerness. You see, Moses knew, he knew that something had to be done about this injustice. And he was right. But knowledge 
is not enough. Intelligence is not enough. Knowledge tells me what to do. Wisdom tells me when to do it and how to carry it out. Knowledge tells me what to do, but wisdom tells me when to do it, how to carry it out. Wisdom tells me sometimes when not to do something, when not to say what you think needs to be said, and you're right. But wisdom says, maybe now's not the time to say that or to post that. The right thing can still be wrong at the wrong time. And I think Moses would have known this had he not made the second mistake. The first mistake was not understanding that timing is everything. Here's the second mistake I think Moses made. And believe me, I'm not sharing this because I'm critical of Moses. I'm sharing this because I want us all to learn, to learn to to not do the same thing that Moses did. The second mistake we read about in Exodus 2.12. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Do you know what we learn from this verse? What we learn from this verse is that Moses looked in every direction except one. He looked every way except up. Moses looked every way except up. He looked all around, saw that no one was watching. But had he paused to look up for just a moment and inquire of God, God is now the right time, he would have known this wasn't the right thing to do. But we know he didn't seek God's counsel. He didn't seek anyone's counsel. He acted in the heat of the moment, in the peak of his rage and anger, and it cost him dearly. Oftentimes, I'll have people, I'm, as a pastor, people will come to me and say, hey, I, can you give me some advice? I'm, I'm struggling with this situation right now. Maybe there's something going on at work or a situation I'm in, and, and I just, I feel like I need to do this. And they'll tell me the drastic action they're gonna take. Do you think that's the, the right thing to do? And more often than not, the advice I'll give is I'll say, you know, here's what I think you should do. Look, look at a date in the future, maybe a week from now, a month from now, whenever it is. Draw a circle on the calendar on that day. And just ask God, between now and then, God, would you guide me? I'm not gonna make that drastic decision today. I'm gonna wait till that date on the calendar. Would you show me, God, what I should do? Should I move? Should I quit this job? Should I make this major change? Sometimes um, they'll feel like God's leading them in a certain direction. Other times they, they just really don't know. So they'll say, okay, God, unless I hear from you before this date, here's what I'm going to do. But I'm giving you from now till that date, God, to change my mind, to show me what I should be doing. Maybe I'll talk to some wise friends, uh, people I know, but this is the date. When I give that advice, oftentimes people will come back to me and they'll say, you know, thanks for sharing that advice. I still went ahead and did what I should have done. Sometimes they'll say, uh, you know, I'm glad I waited because I didn't end up making that drastic decision. But either way, they'll often tell me, but I'm glad I waited. Because that wasn't the moment to make a decision like that. It was so much uh, wiser to just wait a little bit longer for the, the, the emotions to die down a bit to be able to think a little bit clearer, to see a bit clearer, to talk to a few more people and then act in wisdom. To look all around, to look up and to wait on God. Had Moses done that? Had Moses paused to instead of looking around, look up? He would have heard God say, now's not the time. 
Now's not the time for the revolution to begin. Some wonder why that wasn't the time. Why wasn't God ready to rescue the Israelites at that moment? They're obviously in slavery. They're obviously uh, disliking the situation. Why wasn't that the right time for God? I don't know that it wasn't the right time for God. I think God knew it wasn't the right time for Moses. I think God knew Moses wasn't ready for this great task, this great leadership challenge that God had for him. And you might say this morning, not ready? You started out this message by telling us just how ready he actually was. He had the best education, the best training, the best military strategy and advice. But there's another verse in another book of the Old Testament when God was choosing David to be the king of Israel. And David has some incredible brothers who are much bigger and brighter and stronger than David. But God chose David. And God spoke to the prophet at the time and explained why he chose David. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him, the brother. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People judge by outward appearance, but God, when he's looking, he sees our heart. When he saw Moses, he wasn't blinded by his intelligence, his prestige, his status, his power, his military acumen. God, God saw all of that, but he looked past that. And he saw Moses' heart, and he knew that Moses wasn't ready. It wasn't that Moses wasn't the person. It just this wasn't the time. Timing is everything. But Moses wasn't ready for that. He's like, I don't need to hear you. I'm ready. And off he went, and it cost him dearly. So is that the end of the story? that Moses now lives out the remainder of his life in obscurity because of one foolish mistake he made? I really hope not. Because I don't know about you, but I make foolish mistakes on a pretty regular basis. And if that's the end of the story, then it's looking bleak for you and me. So I hope that isn't the end of the story. But what happens next? What happens next in the life of Moses? Well, did you know, for you younger folks out there, that back in the day when you watched an episode of a show and it came to an end, that was the end. <laughs> you had to wait to find out. There wasn't a thing that popped up on Netflix and Amazon that says, would you like to now watch the next episode? <laughs> it, in fact, let's be honest, it doesn't even give you the option. It's like, unless you decide in the next three seconds, you're watching it. <laughs> So the show's finished and you're like, well, I've got some work to do and I've got that assignment I need to start. Well, next episode's already started. I guess I'll watch it. I mean, after all, I do need to find out if Beckham is gonna go to Spain or not. So I, I think I will watch this next episode. But that's not the way it used to be. It used to be that the show would come to an end and there'd be a message that would say, stay tuned because after the break, we're gonna show you some scenes from next week's episode. And you're like... And then you'd watch those scenes and you just all week, you couldn't wait because you got a little glimpse of what's coming next week. Well, stay tuned because the end of Exodus 2 gives us some scenes from next week. Exodus 2 verses 23 to 25. Years passed 
and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard the groaning. He remembered his promise, his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and he knew it was time to act. How did he know that it was time to act? Maybe something had changed in the heart of Moses. Maybe this guy who looked amazing on the outside in his years of living in obscurity had changed on the inside. And we won't know unless we come back next week to find out. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And we love that we can look at these fascinating stories of uh, you at work throughout history. The incredible journey that, that Moses took in his life. And we can celebrate your hand in his life and in his journey. But the reality is, Lord, we can look at Moses as a human being just like us with his flaws and uh, the mistakes he makes. And we think, man, that's like me. And we can be encouraged this morning, Lord, because if you can take someone like that and use them to do great things, then God, you can use me. You can use me in my workplace, in my community, in my family. Somebody like me who hasn't figured it all out, who still makes mistakes. Maybe somebody this morning like me who on the outside looks like I have everything. I've got it all together. But you're choosing to remind me this morning that what's on the outside is less important than what's in the heart. And that maybe, God, there's some things going on right now that it seems like the wrong timing to us, but actually it's the perfect timing to you because you are choosing to do some things in our hearts that we're unaware of. And it could be that in the weeks and months, maybe years to come, we will look back on this point in our life and say, God, your timing was perfect. I'm sorry, God, that I tried to rush things, that I tried to push a door open that wasn't meant to open, Lord. I'm sorry that I tried to take matters into my own hands because now, as I look back, God, I can see that your timing was everything. Help me to learn from this, Lord, to not just look all around, but to look up as well when I'm seeking which way to go. Guide us. May we learn from Moses this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.